Good evening, and welcome to the Gallery of Curiosities. You've caught me at a rather awkward moment. My perpetual motion machine here, it, it just stopped. It was working just fine this morning. I passed it as I went to get my black Darjeeling tea, like every morning. There it was. Now here it is. Dead. Useless. What is more useless than a perpetual motion machine without motion? I can't for the life of me figure out what's wrong with it. Perhaps I should let Kevin out of the basement to have a look at it. He keeps complaining that he's not an English major. That's why I have to keep him chained up. But don't question me. You can't possibly expect me to read all the submissions that we receive. I have other duties. Our first story this evening comes from Stephen S. Power. His first novel, The Dragon Round, was just published by Simon and Schuster. His short fiction has recently appeared in Everyday Fiction, Swords and Sorcery, and Stupefying Stories Showcase. His website is stephensspower.com, and he lives in Maplewood, New Jersey, and isn't frightened to admit it. It will be read for us by John Longenbaugh, a Seattle-based writer and playwright, and the creator of the steampunk adventure serial Brass, which you can learn more about at battlegroundproductions.org. Mr. Longenbaugh, if you would, please. The Revivalist by Stephen S. Power In 1908, George Poe, a distant cousin of the writer, received an invitation from a wealthy New York City couple. They had read in the New York Times about the recent demonstration of his breathing machine for a group of doctors in Brooklyn, and as collectors of curiosities and curious experiences, they desired a demonstration. Poe was hesitant. His machine was a medical device, not an engine of entertainment. For several years he had toured the country, promoting the machine to members of the medical establishment. Should they adopt it, he said, uncounted lives could be restored. Their wonder, unfortunately, was undermined by skepticism, professional prejudice, Poe was not a doctor, and even superstition. Giving a private demonstration, as if he were some parlor psychic, might prove fatal to his efforts. The invitation, however, also mentioned a fee, and even for a man who had built his chemical company into America's greatest supplier of nitrous oxide, that fee was tantalizingly large. Tours cost money, Poe considered. Development cost money. And the private demonstration would probably remain just that, private. The couple issued society, and little was known about them. Of course, he would tell no one, so Poe accepted. The couple lived in a townhouse far from the fashionable blocks. When Poe arrived, he was greeted by the couple themselves. They were as tan, lean, and muscular as ditch diggers. The husband wore a tropical weight tailored suit, a pristine white shirt, and a red foreign hand. His wife wore a jacket and blouse matching his, a daring riding skirt, 
and a delicate red scarf wrapped twice around her throat. She shared his haircut, too. The tie and scarf each bore a thin white stripe just beneath the knot. No club Poe knew of had that color scheme. The husband's hand engulfed Poe's with warmth and goodwill. His wife accepted Poe's hand with an equal, if more graceful, gusto. Poe's driver brought up the plain white casket which held the breathing machine. Poe asked where he should put it. The husband said he would take the casket himself and dismissed the driver with a gleaming tip. "'Have you no servant?' said Poe, who might attend to that. "'We have no regular staff, Mr. Poe,' the husband said, leading him and his wife into a study off the foyer. "'As a practical matter, we're here too infrequently to keep one. "'As a philosophical matter, though, we've survived the South American jungles, "'the Asian and African deserts, the storms of all seven seas. "'How could I be above a little lifting at home, or cooking, even cleaning?' His wife's expression disputed the latter point. She said, "'And it's a social matter, Mr. Poe. "'Too many people cede their real lives to their servants "'so they can submit themselves to the pageantry of society. "'They never realize that pursuing the needs of everyday life "'can be as adventurous as trekking in the wild.' "'The husband placed the casket on a table covered in white linen. "'At one end sat a slatted crate with a black and brown puppy "'that catapulted itself out of a nap when he approached.' The husband gave up his fingers for the puppy to gobble. We've devoted our lives instead to climbing to the tip of every branch on the tree of life and marveling at the vistas. We would feel as alive as this poor puppy. But please, his wife said, we're going on. If you would care to begin. Poe bowed and assumed his position behind the table. A pair of comfortable chairs faced him at a respectful distance, a small stand between them. On it was a ceramic ashtray, a teak box with matches, and twin pipes. The couple sat, took up their pipes, and lit each other's. Their attention to one another was so graceful, it entirely damped Poe's shock at seeing a woman smoke a pipe. Poe opened the casket and pulled out a thick black cloth, then the machine. It consisted of several rubber tubes, two brass piston cylinders operated with a handle, and an adjustable rubber mask. As he arranged the machine, he glanced around the room. On the paneled walls, between the tall, deep bookcases, hung many strange implements. Blades curved and pronged, chains with hooks, manacles with pins that would run between a radius and Mulna. Squared jars were tucked amidst the leather volumes, each holding an indistinct form suspended in a yellow liquid. Most disturbing were the human skulls, which had been crudely trepanned. The skulls were not prehistoric. It seems they have climbed a few branches of the tree of life they shouldn't have, Poe thought. He gave his standard introduction. What you are about to see employs techniques that were introduced decades ago, but they have largely been ignored by medical science. Tonight, we shall take a step towards correcting that. As a sweet smoke whirled from the couple's pipes, Poe took the puppy from its crate and wrestled it to the table. He said, You may assist if you'd like, sir. You will see firsthand that there is no trick about my machine. My company may sell nitrous oxide, but I'll use none. The husband put down his pipe and went behind the table. At Poe's direction, 
he replaced Poe's hand behind the puppy's neck and stroked the animal. The puppy would quiet down for a moment, then lick his knuckles furiously. The husband protested, laughing to his wife's amusement. He followed us home the other day, she explained, and we've fallen head over heels for him. We hope he's an adequate subject. We'd hate to lose the little thing. No worry about that, said Poe. The puppy soon exhausted itself and lay still. Poe handed the husband the cloth. Is there any chemical on the cloth? Has it been treated in any way? The husband held it up to the light. He clenched it, sniffed it, let the puppy sniff it. The puppy clamped down on it and shook it. No, he said, no different from the cloth on my bed. You should see the tatters he's made of it. Thank you. Now? Poe took the cloth from him, wrapped tightly around the puppy's head, and locked it in place with a twist at the neck. The puppy became a terrible imp, its tiny nails ripping at the husband's hands, its spine and legs twisting and spreading. His grip never faltered, even though he wasn't looking at the puppy. He was looking at his wife. She drifted forward in her chair until her toes were braced on the floor, and her hands clenched the front of the cushion as if to keep her chest from pressing any farther forward. She didn't breathe. Neither did he. When the puppy went limp, the wife did too. Her cheeks and brow shone in the lamp's yellow light. She pushed herself back and tugged gently at one end of her scarf. Poe undid the cloth. Is it your opinion, sir, he said, that the specimen is dead, not merely unconscious? Yes, the husband said. He lifted a little paw with a finger until it flopped off. A few drops of urine glistened on its belly. And if you'll turn it over, please. Poe placed a mask around the puppy's head and cinched it tight. He started working the machine's handle. The cylinders pumped. There was a strange rhythm to it. Ten or twelve beats with one pump, then one or two with the other. The tubes whistled thin and tuneless. The wife held her pipe between her hands and her hands between her knees. Deep furrows appeared on her husband's brow. They were fixed on the puppy, lips moving together with pose. A moment passed. Another. Then it started to wiggle, and they both laughed. The husband held up the confused creature, and she applauded. Poe bowed. You can imagine the number of lives this machine might save, he said. This was his usual conclusion, but it felt cheap here. He started to pack up the machine. The husband closed the casket while his wife moved between Poe and the door. Mr. Poe looked at them with some concern. Mr. Poe, the husband said, have you ever used your machine on a man? Poe looked from one to another. No, I've never had the occasion. What if I were the occasion, the husband said. That's a monstrous idea, sir. Poe wished he could have put more indignation into his response, but he had been too stunned to muster it. The wife stepped towards Poe. You must want to know if your machine can fulfill its ultimate purpose. The use of specimens is a scientific necessity, Poe said, a moral necessity. It would be unthinkable to experiment on a man. But unlike this puppy, 
the husband said. I am willing. Why should my experience be any different? Because, here Poe's science failed him, because you have a soul, the husband smiled. And there we have it. This is our chance to test that theory, to see if death is just an empty sea or whether we do land on a new world. And what is that place truly like? Your machine, Mr. Poe, would let me travel there and explore, even to see the face of God, and then return to tell the tale, the greatest Columbus. Poe backed away from the couple, jostling the table. One cylinder clattered off and dragged the rest onto the floor. The puppy wailed. The wife picked up the cloth. No need to hesitate over this. I would take care of the first step. You only need to bring me back, her husband said. I know you can. And when you do, I will have my answers and you will have yours. A terrible thought came to Poe. If he did bring the husband back, he could not tell a soul. He would be infamous, but they would. Surely they would. Who hides a new continent? And whatever the husband saw, others would pay to see themselves. He would be made very wealthy on the bloodiest money, then maybe even wealthier on the best science, having proved his case. Poe realized they had convinced him. He must be restrained, Poe said. He'll struggle and we couldn't hold him down. The couple beamed. We thought of that, the wife said. She flipped up the edge of the table linen to reveal a row of holes drilled along the edge of the table. There's rope in that cabinet. I'll thread it through these holes and bind his legs and arms. The wife retrieved the rope while her husband put the casket and puppy's crate on the floor. He hopped up on the table as if he were at the doctor's, loosened his tie and collar, kicked off his shoes, and settled back. With the efficiency of a sailor, the wife trust him in minutes. Poe tried to distract himself by petting the puppy, but it snarled at him. When he stood up, the wife was dabbing her husband's face with a cloth. I shouldn't be afraid, he said. There's no helping it, she said, but we'll be together again soon. She kissed his eyes, his cheeks, his lips, lifting his head to slip the cloth underneath it. Poe picked up the machine and arranged it on the table. He tested the handle and inspected the cylinders. The fall hadn't damaged them. The tubes were still tightly married. He regretted that he and his wife had never kissed like the couple. "'Are you ready, Mr. Poe?' she said. He nodded. She twisted the loose ends of the cloth together until they were flush against her husband's neck and the cloth was tight against his face. He quivered at first and kicked, kicked again and bucked. The ropes abraded his wrists and ankles. His head rocked hard, nearly pulling the cloth out of his wife's hands, but she bore down. Her face hovered above the cloth. Her lips pulled back a spider's thread of drool connecting her to him. The ends of her scarf licked his chest. She heaved a leg onto the table for more leverage. He jerked towards her so savagely the table legs came off the floor. She leaned against him and the table slammed down again. Poe 
threw himself over the machine to keep it from falling. He smelled the sweat in the small of her back. She was nearly on top of him now, her legs between his, her hips pushing his back down. That calmed him. His breathing shallowed. His feet fell apart. His fists opened. She slid down, laid her head on his chest, and released the knot. Leave only a moment, Bo whispered. The wife nodded and drew the cloth away from her husband's face and screamed. His eyes were huge, stippled with red dots. His mouth gaped, blood between his teeth and his tongue, flaccid and purple, lolling across them. She nearly fell off the table, getting away. Bring him back. That's not my husband. She clutched the cloth to her mouth. Poe had some difficulty attaching the mask, which was built for specimen faces, the wife jerking sympathetically with each movement he made. He started pumping. The irregular beat grated at their ears. The husband's chest rose and fell, but he didn't stir. The wife grabbed his foot, tickled the sole, jabbed it with her thumbnail, no reaction. Poe pumped more furiously. He had experimented on animals so long he had grown used to their small lungs and their heart rates. Plus, he had not really cared if the animals lived or died except in a betting way. He could not fail now, and he was woefully prepared to succeed. Poe stared at the husband's chest. He stopped pumping for a moment to check for a pulse. Nothing. The wife practically screamed at the interruption. She radiated beside him. He started pumping again, gasping in lieu of counting. The handle slipped through his fingers, it was so sweaty. The tubes whistled fiercely. The cylinders creaked. He wondered if something had indeed broken, a tube cut or a cylinder leaking, so the husband wasn't receiving enough air. He couldn't tell. Choking came from the mask. His wife fumbled at her husband's neck. She rubbed the place where she found the pulse, then wrenched off the mask. Her own face looked as leathery. He's here, Mr. Poe, she said. He's here. The wife's hand found her husband's. He had just the strength to hook his fingers on it. Poe knelt in the shadows beside the table. He couldn't think of what to pray for, though. When he rose, she was again dabbing her husband's cheek with the cloth. His horrific expression melted. His eyes focused and unfocused. His lips opened and closed like a fish. Poe jumbled the machine into the casket. The couple could keep the cloth. They didn't notice him hurry out. The next day, a messenger brought Poe a bank draft. He slipped it between the liner of his desk's bottom drawer. Within a few days, Poe's disgust was displaced by an urge to visit the couple and discuss the husband's experiences. A letter brought no response, nor did a second. After a week, he went to the house. The couple was gone. To where, none of their neighbors could say. Our second story this evening is by Jennifer R. Povey. She writes all kinds of science fiction and fantasy and enjoys trying to get thousand-pound-hooved animals to do what she says and playing grown-up pretend with her friends and trying to do as much of the grand tour as she can. 
It will be read for you by Richard Eden, a recording engineer, writer, and designer in Cambridge, England. You may recognize him as one of the voices of Radio Real Steampunk. Do enjoy. Ariadne by Jennifer R. Povey A faint smog tended to drift over the city, rising from the streetcars and the newer steam-powered buggies. Mingling amongst them, the horses seemed rather resigned to their jobs and situations. So, for that matter, did most of the humans, with the sole exception of two boys in shabby clothing who ran across the street in front of a carriage, making the horse stop abruptly and snort at them. The driver snorted at them as well, then shook the reins. The lettering on the side of the carriage identified it as a handsome cab, a dying breed if technology continued to improve, but surviving, lingering in the corners of the city. The curtains of the cab itself were drawn, making it impossible to determine who his fare might be, or even if he had one. From the fact that he flicked his whip to send the horse into a trot, though, it might well be assumed that there was indeed somebody behind those veils. Shod hooves rung on the cobbles, striking the occasional spark. A steam buggy rushed past at a pace far too fast for the city. The driver snorted again, turning the cab down a side street barely wide enough for it. Perhaps he was hoping to avoid the other traffic by this route, for he did not slow the horse near any of the doors and gates that opened out onto it, but rather urged it into another street. Eventually, he halted by a warehouse. A gentleman emerged from the cab, well-dressed with the accoutrements of wealth, tossing a tip to the driver before vanishing within. Within was what one might be forgiven for mistaking for some suburb of hell. The heat was tremendous, and sparks flew from various directions. Men and boys, stripped to the waist, worked at multiple furnaces. The gentleman loosened his cravat, but made no other concession to the fire within. He made his way up an iron-wrought staircase and into an office above. None of the workers paid overt attention to his passing, for that was not what he paid them to do. Instead, they focused on the finishing touches on the beast within. For beast it was a great one. Eight jointed legs grasped the ground, the boiler in its swollen abdomen. Terrible mandibles protruded from the front beneath eyes that were dull and faceted. It was, indeed, a spider of great size, almost too large to fit down some of the city streets. Almost, for it could likely retract those great legs into stilts and teeter through smaller alleyways. In colour, it was black and burned. After some time, the gentleman came out, descending the stairs, to call, "'Hankins!' The noise of the workshop stole away his voice, necessitating a deeper breath and a repeat of the cry. The man who turned wore plain trousers and nothing else, even his feet bare. Rather than attempt to respond over the workshop's clamour, he made his way, silent, towards the man who was his master. "'How close to ready is she?' 
Close, Mr. Tennant, Hankins admitted. Honestly, we're within hours of finishing plus clean-up. The gentleman smiled. It was not a very pleasant smile, but Hankins did not flinch at it at all, as if quite accustomed to that particular curl of the man's lips. Good. Call me when she's done. She because spiders always had, to him, that feminine feel, the female larger and more deadly than the male, the one in ultimate control. Not like the women he knew, the shrinking violets with their corsets and skirts. Women were weak, pathetic creatures that had only one purpose to them, and more and more of them, it seemed, were pushing that role aside, becoming unnatural blue stockings. Women were supposed to be weak. The female spider destroyed her mate. He passed the time with his papers, and eventually with a penny dreadful, some mystery in which the man's dog was as important as the detective himself, and the women swooned appropriately. Then she was ready, judging by the bang on the door. "'Everyone out!' he informed them, seeing that those dead eyes now smouldered red. She was huge close-up. He walked to face her, looking up at those eyes. Hello, Ariadne. The name, of course, was inevitable. She who spun the thread that guided a man out of the labyrinth, as she would guide him out of his labyrinth. She would make his name. She would deal with all those who said he was too nice, too mild-mannered. Hello. "'Ariadne said in a deep voice, not very feminine. "'He would have to work on that. "'Ariadne's voice should be as lovely and deadly as she herself, "'not this grating. "'So, are you ready?' "'She lifted one front leg, then the other, "'then moved all eight in a static dance. "'The tap of her claws on the ground was music. "'Then go!' She tapped her legs again. Go where? Anywhere, just as long as you make trouble. Because that was what she was supposed to do. Run amok, make trouble, make his reputation. Why? Because that's why I made you. Go on. He made shooing motions, stepping to the side before she stepped on him. She would likely step over him, but he was not sure he wanted to risk it. She did step towards the door. Then she turned her head. No. For the sake of the good Lord, go. Slowly, reluctantly, Ariadne tapped her way out. Sheesh. She was at least still intimidating. The panic when she was seen should be enough. He smiled at the thought of the injuries, of the blood, of the so proper women screaming and fainting. If he was lucky, even some of the improper ones would do so, betraying their attempts to move beyond their sex. He did not, of course, follow her. It was not right for him to be there until somebody came running for him, demanding he stop his creation. But he thought about it. And he thought it was good. He went back up to his office and waited. Long hours passed. 
with no call on his telephone or, more likely, a runner sent to get him. The newfangled devices were unreliable and few people had them. Why had he not been called? He took to the streets in the end and saw nothing. This time, rather than find a cab, he made his way on foot. And yes, this was the way she had gone, no doubt spooking horses, no doubt. But he saw no wreckage, nothing to indicate great destruction. He did see part of a carriage fallen to the street where it had banged against the frontage of a building. He followed what he thus believed to be her trail. His Ariadne, and where had she gone? Well, she would come back eventually if nobody called him. He had programmed that into her, that desire to come home. But he had also programmed in destruction. Or so he had thought. He found her in a small, quiet park, her legs tucked in. The forms of children climbed all over her. One sat on her head, grinning. Ariadne! He could not hide now the anger in his voice. Put those children down right now! Except it was more as if they had her. Boys and girls, six or seven of them, laughing and playing around the giant spider's form. Ariadne! His tone now that of a man defeated. She was there, and they were there, and he knew no force could unleash the destruction he had intended now. She would not obey his word, and likely not the call to return. Slowly he walked back to his warehouse, up the stairs, into his office. Nobody was doing what they were supposed to anymore. Nobody, he sulked. Well, let us leave our unfortunate inventor there with his creation. Perhaps he will live to twirl his mustache another day. Though I must say I would not mind having that spider here in the gallery. It would look lovely out amongst the roses. But... For now, it's time for us to close. Do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Like us on Facebook and Twitter, give us some reviews on iTunes, and if you're feeling generous, join our Patreon campaign so we can buy more stories. Our authors deserve a better rate. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by string punk band Deus Ex Vapora Machina. Tonight's story music was by Kevin McLeod and Backbeat Productions. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Mm-hmm.